So chapter 4 is the continuation of this first speech. The second speech is going to actually lay out the law and the stipulations, what he expects of them. Chapter 4 is the transition from the benefits that the king has given them to the laws that he's going to give to them. So chapter 4 is the why they should be faithful to the law. So he's given the history. Now he's going to kind of unpack what is the purpose of the law. What is the meaning of the law, kind of to speak? What is the heart of the law before he actually gets into the laws? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Israel, pay attention to these statutes and ordinances I am about to teach you, so that you may live and go on to enter and take possession of the land that Yahweh the God of your ancestors is giving you. Do not add to, add a thing to what is commanded, you or nor subtract from it, so that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I am delivering you to. You have witnessed what Yahweh did at Baal Por and how he er eradicated from your midst everyone who followed Baal Por. But you who remain faithful to Yahweh your God are still alive in this very day, every one of you. Look, I have taught you statues and ordinances just as Yahweh my God told me to do, so that you might carry them out in the land you are about to enter and possess. So be sure to do them, because this will testify your wise understanding to the people who will learn of all these statues and say, Indeed, this great nation is a very wise people. In fact, what other great nation has a God so near to them like Yahweh our God whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statues and ordinances as just as the whole law that I'm about to share with you today? So the nature of the purpose of the law is basically unpacked here. And the idea is to be obedient. To be obedient. So he says, pay attention to these statues. And so he says two things. So that you may live and take the land so that you may live and dwell in the land. Now, this word live is not just a biological staying alive, survival, survival kind of a thing. The word life used throughout the Bible has this idea of this holistic kind of a life. That not only would you be physically alive, but you would be enjoying the blessings of life, the fruits of life, and that you'd be content and satisfied in life. And then that itself would allow you to live rightly with all the people around you. And so remember, life begins in the garden. In the garden, God created everything to be good. And the word good meant that everything's functioning the way it's supposed to in relation to everything else that's functioning the way it's supposed to. And there were three relationships that God gave us in the garden. The first relationship was our relationship with God. The second was our relationship with each other. And the third was our relationship with creation, the land itself. So life is basically being good or right with the land, right with each other, and right with Yahweh in a sense that we're content, we're satisfied, and we're without want. Oh, if we could just have that, <laughs> especially in the keeping up with the Joneses of America. So the reality is that's what life is in the Bible. And so that's what God is saying is, if you obey, then God will give you that kind of a life. A life where you can truly be right with creation, man, and God, and be content 
and satisfied, enjoying the blessings and the fruit of what God has to offer you. And the second thing is so that you may dwell in the land. Because remember, the land is us getting back to the garden. It is the physical space. It is the space, time, and matter where God meets us so that he can pour out those blessings. The land is the physical life that God wants to give us. And so he says, this is the whole point of the Deuteronomic Covenant. The Deuteronomic Covenant is to get you back to the garden. Back to the garden. As close as we possibly can. As good as it possibly can in this fallen world. And so that's why God is saying this. Now notice, it's not because I said so. That's why you should obey me. There is a time and a place for that. And God does give that answer sometimes. But the heart of the covenant is not because I said so. The heart of the covenant is not so that you will not die. The heart of the covenant is not so that I just can have servants and slaves feeding me like the pagans. The heart of the covenant is so that I can give you everything that you would ever want. So that I can bless you. Because you are my children. As Jesus says, what father, when his son asks for a bread, does not give him rock? That's God. That's Yahweh. So this is so that you may live. And that's very important to understand because it's really easy to come to these laws, which we've already talked about in the previous books, and say, wow, God is a sexist and a male chauvinist pig and he's harsh and cruel and he's pro-slavery and all and anti-homosexual and all these horrible things. And that's not the God here. That's not the God that is revealed here. Then he says, be careful not to add to them or subtract from these laws. And that's important, too, because basically these are God's laws. Now, God can add and subtract whenever he wants, and he does. And even the ministry of Jesus, he subtracts and adds to the law whenever he wants. But the spirit of the law never changes. The heart of the law, what God wants is from us. But he says, you're not allowed to do this. You have no right because you are not the lawgiver. And you don't understand how to perfectly do things. In the same way that I'm not allowed to add or subtract from whether I'm allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Eve said, you know what, I'm going to subtract that law, it didn't go well for her. And Adam too, because he was standing right there with her. And so the reality is, this is what his command is. This is the covenant. You're not allowed to manipulate it in any kind of a way. Which is exactly what legalism is. Legalism is making laws and then you assign the same weight to that law as what God has given. And he's saying you're not allowed to do this. And then or the other extreme is license, where you subtract laws and now there's nothing regulating your life at all. And so God basically says you're not allowed to turn this law into license and you're not allowed to turn it into legalism. You have witnessed how God took away people's lives at Baal Por. Baal Por is when the Moabite and Midianite prostitutes who came and slept with them, and the plague came. And so you've seen what happens when life is taken away from people for disobeying this law. But you yourselves are alive today, standing before me, so you can also see what happens when God gives you life when you obey these laws, because you're now about ready to enter the land. So as we went through the history, remind them you have examples of both the death and the life. So he says, look, I've taught you these statues so that you may possess the land. Now, when they get into the land, they, God wants to bless them by giving them life in the land. But what is their mission in the land? The mission is so that when everybody sees them 
living a life that they all dream of, healthy children, good relationships with your neighbors, the blessing of the crops, a contentment and a satisfaction with life. When all the pagans see that, because they're coming from gods that don't care about them and jack up their life just for entertainment and amusement, they will look at you and say, Oh my goodness. What kind of a God is this that you have this kind of a life? How in the world have you become such a great nation and such a wise people? We have never seen such wisdom as this. We have never seen such blessings as this. We have never seen such greatness as this. And because in the ancient way of thinking, the gods are behind everything that happens to you, the logical conclusion of the pagans will be, who's your God? I want to know who your God is. And in that way, Israel will then fulfill the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant back in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 through 3, where God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world around you. And that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is a good father who wants to bless you because he loves you, but who ultimately, too, is not just blessing you to make your life great, but blessing you so that other people will join in on who God is and what he's doing so they can experience that. Two, expand the garden. So we go right back to Genesis. God says, I've placed you in this land. I'm giving you everything of the land. Everything is freely yours to take as long as you don't eat of this tree, which means as long as you don't define what you think is right and wrong. And if you do that, then you expand the garden. So now in Deuteronomy, God is saying, I want to give you all these blessings if you obey me, which means you don't define what is right and wrong according to yourselves. And then I will put you in the land and then you'll be a blessing to the world and you'll expand the garden. So this is basically the purpose of Deuteronomy is to reenact the garden. Unfortunately, at a great deficit, though, <laughs> called sin. To reenact the garden, to get back to the garden. The whole point of the entire Bible is to return home. The ultimate goal is to get back home, and that's the garden. And that's what the whole book of Revelation is about. Revelation is getting home. Now, the other thing is you need to understand that the other reason that Israel is going to look wise is one reason they're going to look wise with their laws because they're going to be reaping benefits that no other law has ever given them. The other thing is their laws make sense. You have to realize in the ancient world, a lot of the laws did not make sense. So, give you a few examples. When you go to the Egyptian documents, if you get a scratch or a huge wound on your arm, you're told to go get yak urine and mix it with feces and mud and rub it on the wound. Now, we all know today that's not going to turn out well. So when you actually get sicker and it infects and you actually eventually probably have to cut the hand off, and yet the Jews are washing with water on a regular basis and they're getting healed, somebody's going to look at that and say, wow, your laws are actually better than ours. Your laws came from your God. Maybe I should start listening to them. The other one is the laws are totally random, too. Have you ever seen Monty Python in Search for the Holy Grail? Okay, there's a scene where they think that this woman is a witch. And they're like, well, how do we determine whether she's a witch? And they're like, well, witches float. Well, what else floats? Ducks. 
So she weighs the same as a duck, then she's a witch. But if she doesn't weigh the same as a duck, then she's not a witch. And you think that that's just stupid and that they made it up, but you had to realize that's exactly how the ancient people thought. They would say, this person is in league with some satanic power in the ancient world, so let's throw them into the Wad River, and if they drown, then they're not guilty. <laughs> they would say something like that. So they would throw them in, and they would start drowning, and they're like, they're not guilty, and then somebody's got to like, try to get them out before they drown. But then the very next week, it would completely change. And it would be, oh, if they float now, then they're guilty. And it was just totally random, nonsensical. And it was called like tablets of destiny as the big one. And they would just write something on these tablets. And they would interpret it, just mambo jumbo and somebody interpreting it. It was just so random. And you would have to realize after a while, when this stuff happens enough day after day after day, month after month, year after year after year, it doesn't take much of a human intelligence to realize the system is rigged. The system doesn't make sense. And then you come to this law, and it's consistent. Okay, the person is always guilty all the time, based on the same standard and the same parameters all the time. And nothing's changing. And nothing is left up to mumbo-jumbo interpretation. Nothing's left up to visions or seances or that kind of stuff. It's all clearly laid on the law. And in the law, there's also very clear examples of court cases. So here's the law. So let's imagine somebody broke the law, and this is what Exodus was. So if they broke the law, then the judges ruled it, da 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 And if not, da 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 And then there's room for you to kind of figure it out based on these parameters. And this is how Israel is going to look different. And this is foreign to us, because in America, we have a pretty good, consistent, very reliable, in a lot of ways, minus human corruption, system of laws that pretty much generally work all the time without human corruption involved. Why? Because the American law was based on the biblical law. Okay, the, 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 It's based on two things. Plato's Republic, which is a little skeptical, and then the law of God. The idea for government comes from Plato's Republic, but our laws come from the Mosaic Covenant. And that's why this feels foreign to us. We're like, well, duh, don't laws make sense most of the time? Yes, because our law was based on the Mosaic Covenant. And this is why now even today, even though most people in America are not really Christians or not really following God, and there is corruption in our government, despite the corruption in our government, despite the failing of the system, what do most people think when they look at our country? Your government is far more reliable than our governments, right? And even today, with all of our jacked upness in our country, there's still people risking their lives to come to our country because, generally speaking, our country still works better than most people's countries because our country is based on the Mosaic Law. And so even today, it's still working, even though people in government won't give it credit to the Bible. But the question is, why do so many people come to this country even with all of our corruption? Because it's still largely rooted in the Mosaic Law. And the world still sees that, even though we're not dealing with a bunch of idol worshippers and pagans like the ancient world. And so that's the reality. This is what God is saying. That, and of course, most Americans don't know why it's wise. We just know to do it. <laughs> because we've lost the why over the years. And the why is 
here. And that's very important for you to understand. One of the reasons that America has become so great is because God has blessed us, not because we're somehow his favorites or we've been amazingly obedient. It's just we've built our country on the principles of the Bible, even though most people here won't even believe in God anymore. The principles are still valid. The principles are still valid. And so this is what God is saying. The ultimate goal is to be a blessing to the world. And that's what we need to look at. Is Israel, is, is America the chosen people of God? No. The church is the chosen people of God. But we are blessed to live in a country that is based a lot of its principles on the Mosaic Law, and we are blessed to live in a country that has given us a lot of freedoms, which means we should use the tool of America to fulfill the great covenant of God to be a blessing to the world. And so we should be going out into the world with our laws. And we should be inviting the refugees and the foreigners in, becoming that blessing in the way that God intended us. Our government's a little bit more corrupt, but our government has also allowed us to use a biblical tool. Now, how do we actually do that? I don't know. That's a bigger discussion. But that's where the body of Christ comes in with all their wisdom and all their knowledge and all their experience. We begin to work out how do we become this in our country. So verse 9, again, However, pay very careful attention, lest you forget the things that you have seen and disregard them for the rest of your life. Instead, teach them to your children and your grandchildren. You stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, and he said to me, Assemble the people before me so I can tell them my commands. Then they will learn to revere me all the days that they live in the land, and they will instruct their children. You approached and stood at the foot of the mountain, a mountain ablaze to the sky above it, and yet dark with a thick cloud. And then Yahweh spoke to you from the middle of the fire, and you heard speech, You could not, and you could not see anything. Only a voice was heard, and he revealed to you the covenant he has commanded you to keep. Ten commandments, writing them on two stone tablets. Moreover, the same time, Yahweh commanded me to teach your statutes, Use statutes and ordinances for you to keep in the land which you are about to enter and possess. Yahweh goes on, Moses goes on, sorry, and he basically makes the point that I was given the law by God on Mount Horeb and all of your sight. You know where this thing came from. And then I taught the law to you, and now you are to teach your children. And they are to teach their grandchildren. And this is how you're to carry out in the land. The law came from God to me in your sight. And now you can say to your children, I was there. And I saw it given. And I was taught it. And then your children can say, my my father, my mother was there. And they are to teach it on. And so what God has basically commanded through Moses is that every single Israelite is not only to obey the law and keep the law, but they're all to become teachers of the law. They're all to teach who God is. And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll talk about what does that teaching look like? What does that teaching look like? And so this is what he commands them, that when you go into the land, you are to be teachers. And so notice in the first paragraph, he says, you are to be teachers to the nations around you 
her asking the question, who is your God? Because you guys are wise and more blessed than anybody we've ever seen. But you're also to teach your own children. You're to teach your own children. They were not just called to remember their past experiences. They were called to pass them on. They were called to pass them on. Verse 15. Be very careful then, because you saw no form at the time that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the middle of the fire. I say this so that you will not corrupt yourselves by making an image in the form of any kind of figure. This includes the likeness of a human male or female, any kind of land animal, any bird that flies in the sky, anything that crawls on the ground, or any fish to deep waters of the earth. And when you look up to the sky, see the sun, moon, and the stars, the whole heavenly creation, you must not be seduced to worship and serve them. For Yahweh your God has assigned them to all the people of the world. You, however, um, you, however, Yahweh has selected and brought from Egypt that iron smelting furnace to be a special people as you are today. But Yahweh became angry with me because of you. <laughs> There's a third time and vowed that I would never cross the Jordan River in order to enter the good land that he is about to give you. So I must die here in this land, and I will not cross the Jordan, but you are going over and will possess that good land. Be on guard so that you do not forget the covenant of Yahweh your God that he made with you, and that you do not make an image of any kind, just as he has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Now, the first warning that he gives us against making images. This isn't the Ten Commandments. He isn't getting into that yet. He's just getting into the first one. Because remember, this is all about what God you're serving. And this is the most important thing. So he first warns them, you're not allowed to make an image of anything. Now notice the contrast. He says that when Yahweh appeared to you, he appeared in no form. You did not visually see a form. They saw fire. They saw lightning. But that's not a form. One of the reasons that God might have picked fire, for many reasons, is that fire doesn't have a consistent form to it. It's always changing, always being manipulated. And so God has no form. So you're not allowed to make an image of Yahweh because Yahweh has never appeared to you in an image. Period. You don't even know what Yahweh looks like. Second, you're not allowed to make an image because images are limited. They're limited. The minute you make an image of Yahweh as a lizard or as a human or as a tree or whatever you might pick, and all those things have been picked at one time or another, then you're automatically saying that Yahweh is only this and limited to what that image communicates in our mind. The images are powerful. Images trump everything. And so the reality is that I can have an idea in my mind, an imagination that is very fluid and very big, but the minute I see an image, I am limited to only what that image means and what it communicates. It immediately begins to box your concepts in. Now, if your image, the thing that you're trying to describe or communicate is a very limited thing, then picking an image is a great thing because you want to say, this is only this. What do I mean? I mean a frog and only a frog. So you show an image of a frog and that's exactly what you want to see. But if the image that you're trying to communicate or the idea that you're trying to communicate is a Yahweh, an unbounded God that has no limit and no description and is unfathomable and thinking, then an image is automatically going to limit. 
And once God is limited in your mind, then His power and His capability is going to be limited. Your devotion obedience to Him is going to be limited, and your obedience to the land is going to be limited, which means your blessings are going to be limited. And so He's making it very clear, do not make an image of any kind, because this will reduce who Yahweh is in your mind. It will reduce your devotion. It will reduce your blessings. It will reduce the expansion of the garden. Period. The second warning is not explicitly of that of making an image, but rather worshiping images that God has already created, like the sun, the moon, and the stars, or the animals, because God himself has created images. And so the danger is to look at these things. We have all seen way more pictures of outer space than any of the humans in the ancient world ever saw, and we are wowed by those images. It is very tempting to then, as an ancient person who already believes that the gods are up there, to see something like the sun, the moon, and the stars that are very wow, and begin to think that that is an image, because they didn't create that image, and that image is way beyond them. Therefore, that must be the image of a god, or they can associate that with Yahweh himself. So Yahweh, in the second thing, is saying, you're not allowed to take anything that I create as an image and turn it into a form of worship. Now here's the thing. And part of the other reason is this, that Yahweh has already created an image for himself, and that is who? Christ. But before that, it was us. In the beginning, God says, and God made man and woman in his image. But his image was not like, hey, this is what we look like, and I become an idol now. The image is that I'm reflect his character and his words and deeds. It's through the way that we act. It's through the way that we believe. It's through the way that we love each other. This is why Jesus, this always confused me a long time growing up. I was like, I don't know what he's talking about there. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. So when Jesus, the the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to trip him up and they're like, oh, we're going to get him on this one. And they bring him a coin and they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because he's a corrupt pagan person. Then they can go to Caesar and say, he's betraying the Roman government, kill him. But if he says, yeah, you're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, he is your government after all, in the spirit of Romans 15, which hasn't been written yet. And then they can say, look, he's all about images and worshiping idols and God forbids that. So now we can stone him under blasphemy of God. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, give to Caesar what is... He goes, whose image is on this? And they say, Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. For a long time, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, every coin has an image of Caesar on it. So what are you giving God? You. You're the image. So he's saying all these coins are stamped with an image of Caesar. So just give them all back. God doesn't need them. But you're stamped with the image of God. So you give everything that has God's image to him. And then Romans is going to follow that up with present your bodies as a living sacrifice. For this is your spiritual act of worship, holy and pleasing to him. And so that's what God is saying is you don't need to worship images that you created. You don't need to worship images that God has already created. You are the image that is to direct everybody's worship towards Yahweh through your obedience, through your devotion through your love. And just as we are to reflect who God is to people, we're also to reflect the worship of people up 
to God as well. We are mediators. We are to be the priests to the believers. And so the reality is that's what God is saying. Don't limit yourself. Because if you begin to worship other things, then you're automatically worshiping something inferior to Yahweh, which means your life is going to be inferior to what Yahweh has created you for. But likewise, you're going to be limited in the blessings of God in other people's lives and your mission, your purpose, and significance. And so you are not going to fully understand your purpose as a mediator, which means you're going to feel empty and incomplete. And one of the reasons a lot of people have midlife crises is probably because they haven't fully understood their mission in life, their true significance. We're too busy worshiping money, promotions, social acceptance, or whatever. And we have this midlife crisis because it's not bringing us contentment and fulfillment. And if we worship the true image and allowed him to work through us as the image, there's less room for a midlife crisis. Does this make sense? Now he ends that paragraph with, For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Now, there's two things there. There's two sides of a coin. The first one is, he's a consuming fire. One of the other reasons he chose a fire as his image to appear to them on Mount Sinai is because fire is symbolic of judgment. So, the idea is, if you choose to worship something else other than God, or an image that God did not give you to worship, then this fire, not only did it appear to you to bless you with life, but this fire will turn on you and consume you. And we've seen that throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But on the flip side, he also says he's a jealous God. This word jealous is the idea of relationship. In the same way that we would all expect our spouses to be loyal to us, our friends to be loyal to us, or family members to be loyal to us, Yahweh expects the same thing of his children that he created. And so the idea is that he's jealous for you. Not only does he want you and he's willing to die for you on the cross because he loves you so much, but he's also jealous of you going somewhere else, not because he's an inferior, like he's got an inferior complex and he just can't like handle it, but because he knows that you're not going to get the best that you possibly could have that he wants you to have because he loves you. He knows that all other images are inferior and he doesn't want you to experience the inferiority. And so he doesn't want to go, you go out. So he's jealous for you. Likewise, he's jealous for you because he loves you and he wants to be with you. This does not mean that he's jealous of you. Oprah's the one thing that she loves to talk about all the time, why she left the Christian faith, was one day she was in the Baptist church when she was like 20-something, and she says, and, God, and the pastor said, God said he's a jealous God. And she said, what? God is jealous of me? And that's why she left the faith. Okay, that's not the idea. I mean, the, how self-centered do you think God is jealous of you? Okay, that's not the idea. The, God, the idea is that God is jealous for you for you, for you and not only because he loves you, but for you and wanting you to have the best that you possibly can have because all other images are inferior. 